What are the five points of Calvinism? Are they biblical? Join me today as I walk us through the famous acrostic and explore its importance. Welcome to the Happy Holy Hour, a podcast where everyday Christians grow in their faith through biblical examination and insightful discussion. I'm glad you're here today. If you enjoy the content you're about to hear, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and visit us at thehappyholyhour.org. Let's get started. Welcome to the Happy Holy Hour, where everyday Christians grow in their faith through biblical examination and insightful discussion. I'm Tyler, and I am privileged to be your host today. Well, today we're going to talk about the five points of Calvinism, and we're going to try to understand their their rationale uh, and how it fits into the gospel story. So, the following five points that we're going to talk about today are points that we find throughout Scripture uh, to help us dig deeper in understanding who we are in light of who God is and how God saves us through Christ and, and what that means for us as we live a Christian life. You see, they give us a framework that helps us understand the gospel itself on a deeper level. These five points are also called the doctrines of grace, but these uh, these points were formed at what was called the Synod of the Canons of Dort as a response to Jacob Arminius's five points of Arminianism. Now, the five points of Calvinism were used as a, a critique or as a response uh, so that they could resolve confusion and call those that were in danger of committing great doctrinal error back to biblical truth. They are considered the building blocks of Reformation theology because they call us back to what the Scripture teaches. Now, it's a common misconception that John Calvin just outright wrote the five points of Calvinism, like he sat down and just bullet-pointed the five points and said, here we go. But the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace were not something that he directly authored in that way. The famous acrostic that represents the five points of Calvinism, TULIP, did not even appear until the 20th century, but these core teachings can be found synthesized throughout Calvin's works, obviously at the Synod of Dort and in Scripture itself. Now, it's very important to note that these points are not meant to become or replace Holy Scripture. Instead, they are used as a way to actually synthesize Scripture to help us have a better understanding of how God works in the hearts of sinners and understand the very grace of God that saves sinners from eternal damnation. Understanding the basics of these five points will actually help you have a better comprehension of how the gospel practically and logistically plays out in your life. And although much ink has been spilled over these doctrines, I'm going to attempt to explain them briefly and make them easier to understand as we move forward in our Christian pilgrimage. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, the acrostic tulip, like the flower, can be used to help us remember what these doctrines are. And the first doctrine, the first point of Calvinism is the T in tulip, total depravity. It's the idea that humanity is radically sinful and in desperate need of savings. Romans 3.23 says it very simply, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Now, like I mentioned earlier, the five points of Calvinism were brought up as a response to Jacob Arminius's five points. So, regarding this point, Arminian theology would state that while sinners are in fact depraved, they can still, on their own volition, put their hope and trust in God. You know, they would say that God gives us all divine assistance through common grace, and so, therefore, it gives us all the opportunity to come to God, but it doesn't ensure that that will actually happen. But by contrast, Calvinism would say that our depravity affects every part of us to some extent, and because of that depravity, we don't have any power in us to come to God without God himself doing a radical work within us. See, sin has entered every facet of the human life. The Bible says that all have sinned, every single one of us, and we were conceived and born in a fallen world of sin. Our nature only knows sin. Our nature has been radically corrupted by sin. R.C. Sproul said it very clearly, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Every part of our human heart has been blackened by sin and hardened, and it predisposes us always to choose sin over God. In our natural sinful state, we would choose sin over God every single time. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. The consequences of Adam's sin are dramatic and long-lasting. Through Adam, sin has entered every facet of the human life, right? Since Adam and Eve are our original parents, Adam's sin-stained DNA is in the blood of every person that ever lived with the exception of Christ, because Adam was not the father of Christ. Because of this, all people are liable to the consequences and the punishments for sin. Ezekiel 36 says that our natural hearts are hearts of stone, meaning that there is no affection towards God's and no, and no desire to be rescued from our sin. You know, why don't we know how bad this is? Why are men so content in living in their own sin? I believe it's because many of us really don't know who we are in relation to who God is. Most sinners don't even know their need to be saved, which is why it's so important to share the gospel message. Now, you may be wondering why we're spending so much time in total depravity. Well, that's because it's overwhelming. You know, there's a clear distinction that needs to be made with this. Total depravity does not mean that human beings are as sinful as we possibly could be, but sin has permeated every area of our lives. You know, for example, many people like to point the finger at Adolf Hitler as being one of the most evil and wretched men who has ever lived. And yes, <laughs> like you look at that example and it's it's wretched, but Hitler himself was not an anomaly. I believe Hitler is an example of what everyone has the potential of being. But not only that, Hitler even then was still constrained by the common grace of God. And the common grace of God also works in you to restrain your sin. I think if it were not for God's common grace in your life, you would likely look and act a lot worse than even Hitler himself. So at our very core, human beings are evil. Our nature is sinful. And at our core is the rebellion against God and his law. You know, sin corrupts us the moment we took our first breath in our blood. Because of our sinful nature and deeds, we deserve to be punished and separated from God. We deserve eternal death in hell. We must be reminded that our rebellion and sin is against an eternal and infinitely holy God, and therefore any sin committed deserves endless and infinitely terrible punishment. We do not deserve to be in the good graces of God. 
So what's the remedy? Well, because of this totally depraved state, salvation clearly cannot come from within our own hearts. A heart of stone cannot magically transform itself into a heart of flesh. You can't will that to happen. For us to be conformed to the image of Christ, for us to be saved, we need to be completely renovated from the inside out. Ephesians 2 calls this being made alive. We call it regeneration. We need to be regenerated, made alive by the Holy Spirit. We cannot make ourselves new. We not only need a heart surgery, we need an entire transplant. So, to be made right with God, we need the Holy Spirit to change us at our core. So, the doctrine of total depravity helps us lay the groundwork for the next four points to understanding why salvation is not a work that we could just do on our own. The second point of Calvinism is officially known as unconditional election. That's the U in Tulip. Now, Arminius said that God predestined people to salvation based on foreseeing those who believe in him. He had the idea that, you know, God looks down the tunnel of time and he made this decision based on what he saw. But Calvinism says that God sovereignly elects his people to salvation, not because of anything we did to make him choose us. Romans 9, 13 through 24 says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Unconditional election often raises the question, how could God save some people and not save others? How is that fair? But is that the right question to ask? According to Romans, that's not the right question to ask. Let's look into this a little bit, right? If our, if our almighty sovereign God chooses to give his grace to some sinners and withhold his grace from other sinners, is his justice violated? Do those who do not receive this gift receive something they do not deserve? Of course not. If God allows these sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? No. They would be getting exactly what they deserve. One group receives grace, while the other receives justice. No one receives injustice. God is not doing anyone wrong. God's justice is not violated in the slightest. If we're going to ask about what is fair, because our society loves that word, it would be that all perish right? Because we've all sinned. If we're desiring justice for everybody, we should all be burning in the pit of hell forever. 
but let us be reminded by the scriptures. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The Apostle Paul reminds us that it is God's divine right to forgive sin when and where he pleases. It's not on those who meet a set of conditions or requirements, but on those whom he chooses, right? Go back to unconditional election. It's not based on a condition that we have or a set of standards that we need to meet. Salvation is his divine prerogative. Now, how freeing is this? Right? We don't have to work endlessly to merely hope that we would meet God's expectations and earn our salvation. Right? God gives you salvation without you needing to meet any conditions or standard. If we needed to meet a standard to be accepted by God, how would the gospel be good news? It would not be good news. It would be terrifying. It would be a test that we could not pass. Unconditional election. The third point of Calvinism is officially called limited atonement, or I like to say definite redemption. Now, Arminian theology says that Jesus's death is sufficient for everyone, and when we act by putting our faith in Christ, then his salvation is applied to us. In other words, it's not effective to save us until we believe, which would ultimately mean that some of those for whom Christ died would never benefit from atonement. But Calvinism says that God's plan was perfectly conceived and executed to save all of his people. Matthew 20, 28 says, And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Later in Matthew, it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. God the Father perfectly designed the work of redemption for the purpose of providing salvation for the elect, for his people, through Christ, who died for his sheep and laid down his life to save those that the Father had given him. This is often a controversial point, because it seems like we're always taught that salvation is for the entire human race, right? That it's for everybody. For example, let's look at 2 Peter 3, 8-9. through It says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, is this a form of universalism? Is salvation for all of humanity? Well, let's look a little closer. This is what Calvin said in his commentary on Second Peter. He said, So wonderful is his love towards mankind that he would have them all to be saved, and is of his own self prepared to bestow salvation on the lost. But the order is to be noticed, that God is ready to receive all to repentance, so that none may perish. For in these words, the way and manner of obtaining salvation is pointed out. Every one of us, therefore, who is desirous of salvation, must learn to enter in by this way. Repentance. But it may be asked, if God wishes none to perish, why is it that so many do perish? To this, my answer is that no mention is here made of the hidden purposes of God, according to which the reprobate are doomed to their own ruin, but only of his will as made known to us in the gospel. For God there stretches forth his hand without a difference to all, but lays hold only of those 
to lead them to himself, whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world. So, is salvation for all of humanity? In a sufficient manner, yes, God's grace is sufficient for all. But in an effectual manner, no. There are those that are not saved in the final analysis. So, from this, we can conclude that God's will is for His sheep to be saved. And if we know anything about God, we know that nothing can stop His will from happening. Amen? So, think about it. Is the God of the Bible a God who just, He sent Christ to die on the cross and then merely sat back and hoped that someone would accept salvation? Of course not. A God that just helplessly hopes is a weak God and is not described that way in Holy Scripture. According to the Bible, our God is the almighty sovereign God. He is all-powerful over every area of life. If we claim that God is sovereign, we need to be comfortable saying that even our salvation is under the sovereign decree of God, right? If we say that God is sovereign, that's included in sovereignty. God's eternal plan was the redemption of specific sinners, His sheep. It was designed and executed perfectly so that God will accomplish His mission of saving His people through the atoning work of Christ. Not one drop of Christ's blood was wasted. Everything that God set out to do was accomplished. So, for those for whom Christ died, they will certainly come to faith in Him, and we will rejoice together with Christ for eternity. That's limited atonement. The fourth point of Calvinism is officially called irresistible grace, or I like to say it, effectual grace. Now, the Arminian would say that people must say yes or no to God's saving grace, right? They, they would say that it's a decision, it's a choice that they make, but it's only when someone makes that choice to accept God that he actually saves them. According to Arminius, this grace that God offers is resistible, right? God could be trying to save you and you could say no, you could reject him. To put it another way, according to Arminian thought, God sometimes fails to save those that he desires to save. But Calvinism says that we come to Christ because God has already done a work of grace in our souls. And without that work, we would never come to Christ. John 6, 37 through 40 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is Jesus talking. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. Now, the doctrine of irresistible grace does not mean that God's grace can't be resisted. There are certainly some sinners that fight against God's grace for a time. But the idea of this doctrine is that God's grace is so powerful that it can break through our sinful nature and it becomes irresistible to us. It precedes our yes to follow him. If God's desire is to save you, he will do it. The Holy Spirit does not drag people kicking and screaming to Christ against their wills. The point is that the Holy Spirit transforms our hearts and disposition of our wills. It's a radical transformation. We were previously unwilling to embrace Christ because of our sinful hearts, but now that God's grace has been revealed to us, now that we've seen that, we are more than willing to approach Christ. 
Now we joyfully run to Jesus because the Spirit has changed our hearts from hearts of stone that reject the commands of God to a new heart and a new spirit that runs to God. Through Christ's resurrection and the Holy Spirit's work in us, we have been raised from spiritual death and are able to willingly approach the throne of God. Our new heart and our new spirit give us a new inclination and new affections towards Christ. Without the previous work of grace that God has done in our souls, we would never have any inclination to come to Him. It's entirely a work of God. So, this irresistible grace says that it's God's saving grace alone that produces a saving faith and regeneration of a person's heart. God's saving grace is not contingent on our decision. Now, that brings us to the fifth point. It's officially called perseverance of the saints. Now, very simply put, Arminius would say that some Christians can lose their salvation. But Calvin would say that the Holy Spirit equips us and preserves us, it perseveres us to finish the race. I love what Romans 8 says. It says, uh, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son." in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, once we are justified by Christ, we can never be unjustified. Right? The verdict is in. (laughs) In more popular terms, once we are saved, we are always saved. In Romans 8 and many more passages, we see that it's not us who save ourselves, and it's not our works or our righteousness that keeps us moving forward. It's the work of the Trinity. Because of this, it's essential that we not get puffed up views of ourselves. As humans, we will continue to fall into sin. The Apostle Peter rejected Christ, saying that he never knew him, even after being warned that he would do that. Jesus even prays for Peter's perseverance in Luke 22. Peter fell but was restored. He fell but only for a short season. This example shows us that the true Christian, while we can have serious and radical falls, we can never fully and finally fall away from God's grace. He perseveres us to the end. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what's at stake with these doctrines, right? We have the, the acrostic tulip, right? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Well, what's at stake with these? Why are these important? Why did theologians take the time to figure out what the Bible teaches about how God works regarding our salvation? Barry Cooper of Ligonier Ministries brought up some really good points that I wanted to read for you guys on the, well, you know, the the importance of these doctrines because the logical conclusions of walking away from these ideas could be dramatic, right? So Barry Cooper says this: the glory of God is at stake. If the ultimate decisive factor in salvation is not God but us, 
Even if it's 99% God and 1% us, it makes God contingent on his creatures. It elevates us and demeans him. It makes us sovereign over God. Therefore, salvation, as described in the Bible, is 100% God. If salvation was up to me, how could I possibly have any confidence that I would persevere to the end? If I'm the one to take Christ's hand, I could just as easily untake it. It's powerful. And his last point was this. He says, as I pray for those I love that don't know Christ, what good is it for me to ask God to save them if he would not ultimately overcome their resistance to him? If, in the final analysis, a person's own will and whim can thwart the overtures of God himself. Listen, these five points of Calvinism, these doctrines of grace, they help us to glorify God. They help us to recognize that even when a child of God is running at full speed in the opposite direction, that there is one who can still save them from his wrath. And all of these points build off of one another, right? Each one flows into the next. They make sense together, and they're all scripturally based. You can't exactly take one away and still have them all make sense, like the popular four-point Calvinism ideas that are out there. So my encouragement to you today is to remember that God is pursuing his people through the person of Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the church. Due to the dramatic chasm between humanity's depravity and God's holiness, salvation must be a work of God reaching out to lost and broken sinners. And God is sovereignly pursuing his people, and his plan will not fail. Salvation is paid for. It is finished. If you are in Christ, take heart because your eternity is secure. And also take heart to continue praying for those to come to Jesus Christ, because God will save his people. There's no doubt about it. Continue to pray for those who are lost. We don't know who is elect and who is not, but what is our job is to go out and to preach the gospel to a lost and broken world, because when we preach the gospel, it is the work of God unto salvation. It's the means by which God brings his sheep back to himself. So continue to reach people, continue to evangelize, and to reach people for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, thank you for joining us today on the Happy Holy Hour. If you have any questions about what it means to be a Christ follower, please don't hesitate to reach out. Our email is happyholyhour at gmail.com, or you can connect with us over social media. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast apps. So you never miss an episode. Leave a review so others can find the show, and visit thehappyholyhour.org for some helpful resources. Until next week. God bless.